Can you hear me? Am I at an optimal distance? Yes? Okay. Good evening, and welcome to the panel discussion of the second edition of the Handbook for Literary Translators. This edition of the Handbook was prepared by the Translation Committee of Pan American Center and published last month. I am Rika Lesser, co-chair of the Translation Committee, and before I introduce this evening's panelists to you and briefly outline the new handbook, I'd like to acknowledge the participation of present and past collaborators, both on and off the Translation Committee. The responsibilities of translation, an important feature in editions old and new, was drawn up in cooperation with ALTA, the American Literary Translators Association, and the Translation Center at Columbia University. A translator's model contract was originally prepared. Our first model contract dates from 1981. With the assistance of Peter Skolnick, literary agent, and Jerry Simon Chasen, Esquire, and most recently, with the help of Leon Friedman, Esquire, who is here with us this evening. Special thanks are due those members of the Translation Committee who met with me repeatedly in subcommittee over the last two years to compose and revise the text for the new edition. Jonathan Cohen, Mira Ginsberg, my co-chair Peter Glasgold, and fellow panelist Keith Goldsmith. Thanks also to Penn staff members John Marone and Joan Dallin for laying out, publishing, and publicizing the handbook. A few weeks ago, thinking he would calm me during the procedure, a technician giving me an echocardiogram asked me what I did. When I replied that I was, among other things, a translator of Swedish and German literature, he said, sounds like an interesting hobby. Of course, I was furious. But in some way, so inured to that reaction, my heart didn't even skip a beat. But to get to the heart of the matter at hand, <laughs> safely assuming, I hope, in tonight's company, that literary translation is by now a profession as well as an art, we're here to discuss the current status of the profession. In practical terms, the conditions under which translators work have not so much improved as stabilized since the first edition of the handbook came out in 1985. Translators in the United States increasingly receive recognition for their work on title pages, book jackets, ads, publicity copy, and in reviews. But there is still no standard for fees paid to literary translators no boilerplate that assumes or even posits that translators be given royalties or a share in subsidiary rights. And some laws that affect translators, notably those concerning copyright and works made for hire, have changed. Now as before, the handbook is conceived as a practical guide for both translators and publishers in the face of changing conditions. Revised, updated and expanded, the most obvious change in the new handbook is that it's nearly twice as long as the old handbook. Again, it invokes ethical guidelines in the responsibilities of translation. The revised model contract 
now has its explanatory notes printed on facing pages. There are three new sections. Negotiating a contract offers recommendations to professional translators concerning the terms of the contracts they sign. Selected resources lists, among other things, publications, organizations, programs, and awards devoted to the art of translation, as well as offering words of caution or counsel on securing translation rights. Selected resources stands in place of the old handbook's 1969 manifesto on translation, A Call for Action, giving evidence of the fulfillment of many of the needs the manifesto called attention to. The final section, International Pen's Declaration on the Rights and Responsibilities of Translators, a document prepared by the Translation Committee of International Pen and the Translation Committee of Pen American Center in January 1986, further, defi further defines how International Pen's express intent of enhancing the unhampered transmission of thought among all nations should be enacted. I will not go on in further detail about the various sections of the handbook because I've asked our distinguished panelists to do so. After they've spoken and asked questions of one another, you and the audience will be invited to ask questions. I'm sorry to say that Alison Bond, literary agent and foreign publisher scout, suddenly could not be with us tonight. I'd like now to introduce the rest of our panelists in the order in which they will speak. And I'll start with Leon Friedman down at the other end of the table. Leon Friedman is a specialist in copyright and First Amendment law and the author of several books on these topics. He is also general counsel for Penn. The revised model contract reflects changes in the interpretation of laws concerning works made for hire and discusses the implications of the United States having become a party to the Berne Convention. I've asked Leon to discuss these changes and how they affect or may affect translators. Edith Grossman, award-winning translator and critic of contemporary Latin American literature, is the author of the widely acclaimed book the Anti-Poetry of Nicanor Para. Among her many translations of poetry, fiction, and essays by major writers are works by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Love in the Time of Cholera, and The General in His Labyrinth, Julio Cortazar, Nicanor Para, and Ariel Dorfman. I have asked Edith to speak about negotiating a contract, both the section in the handbook and her own experiences over the years. Keith Goldsmith has worked as an editor and edited many translations at George Braziller and at Carcanet. He is currently director of the Folio Society and a very active member of the translation committee. I've asked Keith to give us the editor and publisher's perspective on the new handbook and to address the question of how bright or gloomy the outlook for literary translation in the United States now seems. Because Alison Bond could not be with us, I've also asked Keith to say a few words about translation rights. Leon. Well, I'm the technician on the panel here, and my job is, is to go over some of the uh, uh, legal nuts and bolts of the, of the basic concepts. Uh, and I want to start with the whole concept of work for hire. 
Now, under the United States copyright law, there are only two possibilities for a translator. There are only two legal uh, relationships that a translator may have uh, with respect to their translation. Either they are the author or the employee of a work made for hire, or they are an author. Now, those are the only two relationships that the American copyright law will recognize. And in the copyright law, in section 101 of the copyright law, the uh, American copyright law passed in 1976, came into effect in 1978, says that it is possible for a translator to be considered the employee of a work made for hire. There's an ongoing debate about employee of a work made for hire, whether an illustrator or someone who contributes uh, to a collective work can be considered an employee of a work made for hire. But the law specifically has and recognizes that translations may be considered a work made for hire. Now, what does that mean if you are the employee of a work made for hire? It means that the employer the person who actually pays the money is the author of a work. Now, the consequence of being an author as opposed to the employee of a work made for hire is twofold. One, the author of a work has the right to recapture all their rights at a later point down the line. And that, I mean, granted that under American copyright law, it takes a little while for that to happen. But uh, there are any number of situations where the author, despite whatever the contract says, may recapture some rights down the line. And depending on when the uh, original contract was made, it may be 35 years down the line, it may be 50 years down the line. But an author, even though they may convey rights to a, uh, to their work to a publisher, they can recapture those rights at a later point. So the difference between being, made, being considered an employee of a work made for hire means that you can get those rights back at some later point. Now again, this doesn't relate only to translators. It relates to any employee of a work made for hire. The second consequence of being considered the author of a work as opposed to an employee of a work made for hire is that under the Berne Convention, the author of a work has the right both to establish their paternity and to protect their integrity. The Berne Convention, which is the oldest international treaty protecting intellectual works, recognizes two rights of an author. And those are the paternity right, the right to be correctly designated as the creator of the work, and the integrity right, which is the right not to have your creation distorted, modified, uh, in a way that would affect your honor, and I think we have the exact words of the, uh, 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 if you look at page 13, 
The creation shall not be distorted, mutilated, or modified in a manner that, quote, would be pre prejudicial to the author's honor or reputation. The integrity right. So that what that means is the consequence, again, it has nothing to do with money. You can agree to get X dollars and X dollars uh, as an advance and X dollars as a royalty uh, and still be an author or still be an employee of work made for hire. One has nothing to do with the other. The amount of money that a translator receives is totally separate from the legal status that they enjoy. And you can get less dollars and be an author and more dollars and be the employee of a work made for hire. One, there's simply a, a separate, total, distinct uh, relationship. Now, from a publisher's point of view, obviously, uh, it is in their interest to have more control over the translate, I think, although there are publishers who are uh, 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 less concerned about this. Uh, from a publisher's point of view, uh, it is better for them to be the employee, employer of a work made for hire because they have more control over the work uh, down the line. So it is to some extent in their interest uh, to have the relationship defined as the employment of a work made for hire relationship rather than as another author. Uh, although, as I say, uh, uh, that varies from place, uh, from place to place. Now, in order to have an employment for hire relationship, the contract must use those magic words. If the magic words, employee of a work made for hire, does not appear in the contract, then the translator is the author. And again, it makes no difference what the money, advance, royalty payment uh, uh, is. The contract must use those words. So if it's silent, then it cannot be a work made for hire. And the United States Supreme Court, in a case just two years ago, reaffirmed that, uh, I mean, it says so in the copyright law, uh, and uh, the Supreme Court has recently reaffirmed that. So that uh, without, and, and they have to be there, work made for hire, employee of a work made for hire. And I think in paragraph 5, or 5A, uh, you will see uh, what must be there for the relationship to be considered uh, a work made for hire. Without that, those words, as I say, you are an author, an author for purposes of the copyright law and an author for purposes of the Berne Convention. Now, uh, what does it mean? How, what rights does a translator have uh, as far as the Berne Convention is concerned? Now, um, as I say, the Berne Convention, which is now a part of American law, March 1, 1989, the Berne Convention became uh, enforced in the United States through something called the Berne Convention Implementation Act. And that says that the rights recognized under Berne are now a part of American law. 
What that means for a translator is threefold. Number one, and this is sort of a negative implication, although uh, I don't know that it really changed the law that much, if the translator distorts the original work, then they have violated the integrity right of the author of the underlying work. So that, to some extent, the implementation or the passage of the Berne Convention puts a legal obligation on the translator to be true to the original work. You cannot distort, mutilate, modify the original work in a way that would, as the, as the convention says, uh, uh, modify it in a manner that would be prejudicial to the author, and this means the author of the underlying work, honor or reputation. Now, to some extent, of course, the contract would al always require that you make a faithful rendition of the work. So as a matter of contract, you're required to do that anyhow. So I don't know that a translator is any worse off under, after the passage of the Berne Convention than they are under the requirements of uh, the basic contract, which always requires uh, that the uh, translator uh, make a faithful rendition of the work. More important, Byrne protects the translator in two ways. It makes you equally a creator to the author of the underlying work, and therefore the publisher cannot modify your work in a way that would be prejudicial to your honor and reputation. So to that extent, you are recognized, if you are the author, you have rights under the Berne Convention to make sure that your work isn't distorted, that your translation isn't distorted. And secondly, you have a paternity right. You have the right to have your contribution correctly designated. And therefore, uh, again, these are rights which you can waive, I hate to say it, in other words, to, uh, these are rights that the law gives you, but as with most rights, uh, you can sign them away. Uh, but uh, it's, it's rare that I know of that a publisher would say, no, waive your right of paternity, waive your right to be recognized as the author of, of the translation. So uh, that, that uh, becomes, uh, uh, as, a, as a practical matter, it's, it's rarely an issue. Uh, but uh, I think there is a more subtle uh, recognition here. I mean, the fact that you are an author, that you are an author for purposes of, uh, of having your work, uh, uh, having the integrity of your work maintained, and having your contribution to this work recognized, I think Byrne does uh, make it more difficult to sign them away. Uh, it no longer becomes a question of contract law, it becomes a question of uh, waiving some very important rights that international law uh, has recognized. And I think to some extent it's, it's at least a psychological boost down the line uh, for getting, uh, maintaining your percentage of subsidiary rights. Uh, if the work is sold for uh, dramatic rights, uh, it seems to me, and, and some of your translation is used uh, down the line, it seems to me that Byrne gives you a better leg up 
uh, to insist that uh, uh, you get some uh, compensation, if not recognition, for, uh, uh, for any later use that's, uh, that's made. So uh, uh, the changes in American law, the, uh, the whole work for hire situation, an extremely technical uh, requirement that the contract specifically say, I mean, the, the publisher may think that he that he's, uh, uh, cre has created a work for hire situation, but unless they say so in the contract, it is not a work for hire situation. Now having said that, of course, even though you are an author, when you deal with a, with a publisher, the publisher may insist on obtaining all the rights or obtaining whatever rights they need in order to exploit the work. Uh, so signing away your copyright is not inconsistent with you being considered an author. But at bottom, your status as an author does allow you to recapture, does, uh, it does protect your right to insist upon the integrity of the work, and I think it does give you a big leg up on uh, being able to uh, 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 obtain compensation uh, when the work is exploited down the line. Thank you. Thanks. Edith, you want to talk about negotiating? <laughs> well, after listening to Leon, my initial reaction was true. Uh, when I was first asked to appear on the panel, I felt like a mouse invited to a cat's dinner party. Um, and um, my dislike of contracts matches, only matches my dislike of IRS pamphlets. I find them equally inhumane and incomprehensible. Um, so I cannot in any way match uh, uh, the, the lucidity of Leon's description of the new laws. Um, what I can do uh, is more anecdotal uh, concerning my own experiences in signing these contracts, um, some of which I have signed blind and some I've signed uh, with advice. Uh, my advice to anyone who translates is to get a lawyer. Um, the publishers tend to play old boy network gentleman's profession, but in fact, they're looking at the bottom line and it is business. And if you do not feel comfortable, competent, confident, in doing business with business people, uh, as I do not, um, then it is crucial that you get someone to help you negotiate the contract. Um, even with the wonderful advice uh, that's contained in this handbook, um, for your own peace of mind, uh, it seems to me terribly important that you have someone else do the negotiating. Uh, the lawyers are sharper than we are, they're smarter than we are, and they are not emotionally engaged in the um, artistic work that we are committed to. Uh, and that commitment, that need uh, to get into print, the need to publish the work that we do, can sometimes blind us uh, to the true ramifications of the legal contracts that we sign. 
Um, I say lawyer over and over again and not agent uh, because my experience has been uh, that 99 and 9 tenths of the agents in the world do not care to handle translators. Um, for a, uh, a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, I think it's rather rare until very recently that translators ever requested agents to represent them, and so the agents have very little or no experience in dealing with the problems of a translator's contract. Um, and so in my experience, your best protection is to get a lawyer very used to dealing with author's contracts, uh, because those people are very aware um, of how one negotiates with a publisher to protect the rights and the interests of um, the client. Now, um, there were five points uh, that were raised not only in the section on negotiating, <clears throat> but in the entire um, handbook that I wanted to comment on uh, without mentioning the publisher involved or the work. So this is anecdotal and gossipy, but uh, I'm not going to use any names. Um, the control of the manuscript. Um, it is probably the most important right uh, you have. Uh, it's as important to us as translators as uh, it's important for an author to have control over her or his writing. Now, I had the experience in my uh, uh, salad days of um, signing a contract that was a work-for-hire contract without understanding what that term meant. Um, because I thought, it, like the instructions for VCRs or the pamphlets that come out of the IRS, I understood each word separately. It was the combination uh, into phrases that confused me. And so I found that um, when the book was published, uh, the translation was not my translation. Um, every um, point in the book that I thought was artful had been edited out of the manuscript and there were, uh, or out of the printed uh, novel, and there were changes that I despised and um, uh, so much so that I wanted to have my name taken off um, of the book but it was really too late because it never went into a second printing. So, keeping absolute control all the way through from um, um, galleys to page proofs is crucial. Um, certainly one is reasonable, one needs an editor, uh, one needs an objective eye to look over the work that you've done, uh, but you must have a firm consultation right on any change that is made in the final version that you submit to the publisher. Secondly, uh, the notion of a review panel um, in the event that the publisher decides that the translation is unsatisfactory. 
Um, that's a wonderful idea. It had never occurred to me until I uh, read this handbook. And um, that situation has happened to me twice. Um, in both cases, I felt very victimized um, uh, by uh, the procedure. I believed that the work I had done uh, was decent work, and I was um, floored by the response. Um, and I was at a loss, as uh, really at a loss as to what to do about it. Uh, so the idea of asking for a review panel, um, one per I think the way the handbook states it is one person that you choose, one person that the publisher choose. I don't mean, I do mean person, but a translator. A translator that you choose, a translator chosen by the publisher, and then a third translator chosen by the two translators that you and the publisher have selected to review um, your work and to come, uh, uh, I guess, to engage in what's really binding arbitration uh, uh, regarding this conflict. Um, so for, your, um, for the health of your ego as well as your pocketbook, I would suggest that you, uh, if at all possible, you get that provision into the contract. Um, third point. The size of the print used for the translator's name. It sounds so trivial that I'm almost embarrassed uh, to bring it up, uh, but I have found my name sometimes only with the help of a magnifying glass. Um, and um, I resented it uh, uh, dreadfully, and I realized uh, how much ego is involved in the work I do, and I certainly wanted my name at least to be legible, if not as large as the um, original author's name. So uh, let me suggest that that very specific uh, requirement that's in the handbook, what did you say, 25%? 75 75%. 75%. I like that even better. 75% <laughs> uh, of the size of the print used for the author's name uh, is something you should specify and not feel petty uh, um, when doing it. Fourth point, uh, the use of the translator's name in all publicity and in catalogs sent out by publishers advertising the books. I haven't gotten a handle on this yet. Um, I have found books that I've translated in publishers' catalogs and my name never even appears, uh, as if um, uh, the book was an original English language uh, book. Um, I suppose the thing you do is get your 85 closest friends to write indignant letters to the publisher complaining about the fact that there should be some indication that, in fact, this book is a translation and it was translated by a human who has a name. Um, but sometimes you run out of energy, um, and that I, is another reason why it's a very good idea to have a lawyer on your side, uh, uh, because I think this is a case where the lawyer who represents you uh, can make 
the right kind of phone call and make the right kind of statement to the publisher. Um, finally, um, anecdotally, uh, the question of where your name appears in the book. Now, uh, my experience has been that regardless of how pleasant uh, the publisher is and regardless of what a nice lunch or two you eat with that person, having your name anywhere but on the title page uh, is tantamount to continuing uh, the beating of your wife. Uh, I, it uh, appalls me and confuses me as to why uh, publishers are so resistant to putting the translator's name everywhere they put the author's name. Um, and that means if there's a jacket on the book on the flyleaf, it means on the front cover, it means in the back, and as a matter of fact, if there's a little biographical blurb for the author, there should be a little biographical blurb for the translator as well. If in fact uh, that lovely word that was used in the handbook, if in fact we are collaborators with the authors, uh, we certainly are not getting paid as much money as the authors, uh, but we never went into translating for the money, so at least we can get some of the perks um, of seeing our name in print and getting the advertising uh, for ourselves uh, that goes along with having your name visible, not only in the advertising, uh, but on the book itself. Um, how am I doing on time? Fine. Well, you have uh, another anecdote, please tell. Another anecdote. Uh, <laughs> let me see. <laughs> um, one, one final thing about uh, the, the negotiation of the, uh, of the contract. Um, I know I've sounded very, uh, somewhat hard-nosed uh, talking about this, uh, but there's another part of it, um, and I guess I'm, I'm agitating still for you to have somebody represent you in your confrontations with the publishers. Uh, we do this because we love it, and we do it because we have to, artistically. And sometimes we find ourselves in a, or I find myself in a position where I sign something that with the acuity of hindsight is a wretched, wretched contract. Uh, and I've done that more than once uh, to my horror. Uh, but the, uh, and not because I'm a fool or a naive, but because the desire to translate a particular book, a desire to get that into print, see it in English, have that piece of writing or that author known to an English-speaking uh, public, uh, is overwhelming. And I have found myself saying, yeah, okay, okay. Less of a royalty, no royalty. Uh, flat fee, this percentage of uh, first publication or second, uh, first serial or second serial rights, not really a, a reasonable amount, but I'll settle for it because I want to do this work and I want this book in English. Um, so we can be as um, um, 
tough as we can rev ourselves up to be, but the publishers know, I'm afraid, because they've been at this business for a long time. They know when we want that piece of work, and they know when we want a contract. Um, and they are bottom line people, for the most part, and uh, will use that desire that we have um, to get our work, um, to bring our work to life, uh, and it doesn't live until it's in print. Um, I think I'll stop now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the single most uh, significant change in the second edition of the Handbook for Literary Translators is the reevaluation of the relative merits of royalties versus work for hire, as Leon's explained. Um, even as the current reformulation of the legal definition of work for hire evolves, uh, the way is now clear for translators who are employed on a work for hire basis to retain an interest in and some rights to their translations. Translators no longer have to choose simply between a royalty arrangement or giving up complete control of their translations. However, it is not clear at this relatively early stage whether publishers will simply make explicit what was before implicit in the definition of a work for hire. Publishers may still insist on retaining all rights to the translations in perpetuity, but now they will need, from a legal point of view, to spell out in details, using the magic words, uh, as an employee work for hire, all the rights that they lay claim to. The translator will, in, in effect, have to explicitly assign those rights specifically to the publisher. Though the Penn Handbook still recommends that translators seek royalties for their translations, the new interpretation of work for hire means that translators no longer automatically lose control of their translations and that there now exists a tenable and attractive alternative to translators. They may complete their translations as work for hire, but still retain an interest in future financial benefits which may accrue from the translation, as well as have the rights reverted uh, to them upon the translation being declared out of print by the publisher. A survey of two dozen literary publishers undertaken by the translation committee last year indicated that the majority of those publishers still preferred work for hire as the basis of their agreement with translators and that royalties remain very much the exception rather than the rule. More than three quarters of the titles tallied in the survey were done on a work for hire basis. Royalties tended to be offered primarily to translators who could command such an arrangement um, on the basis of their reputation. Though not part of the survey, I would imagine that um, that number of translators uh, for whom this would apply is probably no greater than two dozen. For all translators, it seems work for hire is the normal state of affairs. It should be noted, however, that a small number of smaller presses, as a matter of policy, offered royalties to all translators 
and have adopted the Penn model contract as their guideline. Other publishers, though, and certainly the larger publishing houses, remain skeptical at best of royalties in principle. The survey also showed that publishers tended to perceive translation as being more trouble than they are sometimes worth. Extra time, extra editing, extra costs, in particular, combined with the opinion that translations sold less well than other titles, indicated a distinct bias against translations as publishing ventures. Considered alongside today's current publishing atmosphere of belt tightening, conglomeration, and publishing houses closing altogether, the outlook for most literary translations must be viewed as bleak. For publishers who are increasingly cost conscious with an eye on the bottom line for each book, translations are undoubtedly being looked at much harder. Most literary fiction and poetry, whether in translation or not, is going through a difficult period of reassessment with most publishers. With lists being pared down, just this sort of mid-list title is being scrutinized much more carefully, and translations probably even more so. The current reality of publishing is not at all healthy, and translations, hardly ever a priority in any publishing program, are being hit hard. A recent survey in Publishers Weekly indicated that in 1990, translations published in English were down to 1,110 from 1,893 in 1989, the year before, a decline of 42%. That total represents the lowest number of translations published in the past six years. Similarly, the total number of books published in the United States in 1990 was down to 38,884 from the previous year's total of 53,446 a decline again, but this time of 27%. The proportion of translations uh, published as a percentage of total books published has therefore fallen from um, a meager 3.5% to 2.85% of all books published in the United States. The Penn survey, which was confined, which confined itself to a small number of, of trade and university presses who published specifically literary works revealed a similar trend towards reducing the number of translations being considered for publication. Thus, it would seem that translators in general are not in a terribly strong position to negotiate with publishers over contractual terms. Established translators, as I've noted before, are negotiating with publishers and are getting atypical contracts as a result. New or young translators are not negotiating nearly as much, either from a lack of knowledge or nerve. And it certainly does take nerve. Translators will need to weigh their options carefully. Work for hire will tend to pay more up front, and by more I don't mean a terribly great deal amount of money either. Um, but uh, uh, a royalty situation may possibly pay more in the longer run. 
royalties may prove to be more financially rewarding if the book sells particularly well. It is not an easy or straightforward choice for either the publisher or trans translator to make. There are no hard and fast rules to go by. This will, of course, be especially difficult for a new or inexperienced translator. Um, translators may fear that by asking too high a fee or an advance, their demands will simply be ignored and that the publisher will opt for services of a more reasonable translator. Oftentimes, a translator will be selected from a group of sample translations submitted to the publisher. Publishers wishing to have the best possible translation, which of course is in their interest as, a, as the success of the book in part depends upon the quality of the translation, is unlikely to walk away from a translator who requests a particular fee or royalty arrangement without any discussion at all. Publishers are used to negotiating and making counteroffers, even if the translator is not. Both translator and publishers will need to assess a variety of financial factors and determine the respective financial minimums and requirements. These need not be mutually exclusive. A frank discussion between translator and publisher should outline for all parties what the expectations for the book will be in terms of sales and how best the financial uh, remuneration for both publisher and translator can best be achieved. If the publisher is reluctant to pay more upfront, the translator should perhaps consider a royalty arrangement with a lower advance, thereby effectively sharing in the risk, but also the potential income with the publisher. It is a difficult decision for the translator to set a minimum and stick by it, especially as Edith has mentioned, you really want to translate a book terribly much. Um, but, that, but sometimes a translator will have to be willing to do just that. As authors have become increasingly more assertive in rejecting boilerplate contracts, so too must translators begin to follow in their footsteps. Um, and taking exception with what Edith said before, um, I think for um, a new translator, for someone who's only translated a couple of books, it is probably, I would agree with Edith, that it's next to impossible to find an agent to represent you. But also one has to realize that lawyers um, tend to require fees, uh, which are rather substantial, and probably won't recommend that their fees would be greater than what they could obtain for you. Um, uh, and hence, hence, I would suggest, uh, as, as uh, from the publishing point of view, that one takes a look at the model contract in the handbook. That is certainly an excellent guideline to go by um, for someone just starting out and, and who may not be able to find a lawyer to represent them. Um, Rick has also asked me to, to comment briefly upon uh, literary agents um, and uh, scouts. Um, and I guess the, the, uh, the areas in which agents and scouts play their biggest role is representing foreign publishers here in the United States and placing titles 
uh, for translation here in the United States. Uh, clearly, their obligations are to their uh, foreign publisher and to the original author. And I find that they tend to be much more aware of the rights of translators and the need to pay translators appropriately and um, the need to give translators uh, the rights of authors, especially in the, in the terms of, uh, in the form of, of royalty. Um, and that they will be much more willing to uh, divide up the author's royalty with the translator. So in other words, um, have the translator receive a portion of what the author would have received. And this is something that agents uh, tend to bring into a contractual uh, discussion with publishers, which perhaps uh, a translator on their own would not do. Um, but, for, but again, referring back to our uh, survey, we found that a lot of translation projects were in fact brought to publishers by translators more than uh, agents or scouts. Um, obviously the large, the, the very, very well-known authors uh, have their own agents, which sometimes are the, the, the scout for a uh, publisher here in the United States, and those tend to get placed relatively easily. Uh, but they have as just difficult time placing uh, new authors uh, with publishers. And for uh, new translators, I, th I, I tend to, to find that, that literary agents and scouts are a bit more marginal. Um, but they do have an active role to play, as I said, in terms of advancing the cause of translators uh, as authors here in the United States. Thank you. Do we have some questions among ourselves, or shall I turn this over to the audience straight away? Let me go on to the question about lawyers versus uh, uh, agents. And uh, um, I mean, obviously, I'm a lawyer. And there are times when you have to figure a lawyer is going to charge uh, $200, $250, $300 an hour. Uh, and if he knows his stuff, uh, that's, that's his, his rate. Now, uh, obviously, someone who knows book publishing is not going to spend five hours looking up everything. And if, if he can do it quickly, it may be worth it to get someone who's very knowledgeable. Uh, the trouble is, uh, if you say to yourself, well, this lawyer's going to cost me $500 for two hours' work, what will an agent cost me? Uh, and will he make that much more of a contribution? So all I can tell you, it, uh, it's a simple matter of calculation as to how much more an agent or a lawyer will, will cost on a particular, uh, on a particular contract. Uh, but uh, lawyers do charge on the basis of their time. Uh, uh, but you, you get people who know what they're doing, and they'll be able to do things quite efficiently. Yeah, I would, I would like to comment on that. Um, when you're first starting out, and if you're on the bottom of that wretched pay scale that's in this handbook, and somebody actually seriously suggests that you earn $40 per thousand words, the idea of giving up any of that money uh, to a lawyer or to an agent 
is heartrending. Um, and but so it's almost uh, like comparable to the decision of when you're going to itemize your deductions and when you can stay on the short form. If you get if you look at these wretched contracts, if you're a new translator, and the wretched money that you work for as an investment in future contracts, um, then um, you can look at them as the, as the short form income tax return. And at a certain point, decide that even though the amount of money that you'll receive from the contract will be reduced by the lawyer's or the agent's fee, that person will put other things into the contract that could never have occurred to you unless you have a legal mind. Um, and so what you lose in the upfront money, you gain uh, possibly financially in the future as well as in the areas of the perks that I spoke about uh, before. Um, and I'm really sorry that you put in $40 as part of that range um, of possible pay, given the amount of time that a readable translation requires. That, I, I should mention that wasn't what we recommended. Oh, I know, amount, 65 but, is, the, is the bottom line right, that you recommended. But, uh, the results of our survey did show, in fact, that publishers were paying that amount, um, and it is scandalously low. Um, but again, as, as a translator, you need to go into a publisher and know that they very well may offer you $40 per thousand um, and, and know that that is, is a very, very small sum of money. I had a technical question. I thought I more or less understood things about work for hire and copyright and it's really about recapturing rights and it's both something that Leon said and something that Keith said. You seem to imply that there was a way to sign a work-for-hire agreement and yet somehow later on down the road recapture your copyright in the work. Is that...? Everything you give away, you can get back. I mean, by contract, you can modify what the law would otherwise provide. And there is a provision of it. If it goes out of print, you get the right. You, whatever you gave to the publisher, you get, you get back. Now, obviously, a translation is a copy of the underlying work so that even if the translator would get back whatever the publisher has, they can't go out and sell it contrary to whatever rights the underlying author may have. Unless it's in the public domain, of course, then of mm -hmm. course your translation is, is all your own. But uh, all, all uh, Keith and I were not inconsistent with each other. Uh, if you're an author, regardless of what the contract says, there are some circumstances under which you can recapture. If you're a work for hire, if the contract allows you to recapture, then, then you can recapture uh, in accordance to whatever negotiation you, you do. Right, and, and, and the point being that translators should insist upon um, uh, recapturing various rights or feel free to uh, add in things, even though it may say work for hire, that they needn't be limited. Edmund Keeley.
I understand. I will tell you that the same law that created Berne Convention has done away with the need for notice. So that, so that in fact, uh, what, you know, that C in a circle is becoming, is number one, not necessary anymore. And number two, it doesn't make any difference really whose name it is, it's the contract that counts. So it's the, you can put it in the publisher's contract, uh, his name, but the author has a lot of rights. Or conversely, it could be in the author's name and it ends up that the publisher has all the rights under the contract. What counts is the contract. Well, um, uh, I, I, if I said it, I'm, I'm not sure the context I said it in. It, it's, if the book ever goes out of print, you want to be able to uh, make sure that you have whatever rights uh, exist in your, in your work. So to that extent, it's important. it would be important. You can always assign it and whatever. I mean, the C in a circle is becoming less and less important uh, as, as we go on. Are there other questions? I'd like to try and repeat them into the mic so we have, even if it seems redundant, so we have this fully recorded. Lee Fonstock. Well, um, the question Lee is posing is whether it's still best to be considered as a translator the author. It's close. Okay. Well, uh, as I say, if you if this is a work for hire, then the publisher can make modifications. He's the author, he or it or whatever it is is the author. And unless there's a specific contract provision protecting the integrity of the translation, the use of the magic words work for hire means that it can be modified without your permission. If you are not the employee of a work made for hire, if you are the author and nothing is said in the contract, the presumption is the opposite. Namely, that as an author, your work cannot be modified or changed or altered in a way that would be prejudicial to your honor and reputation. So uh, every, practically everything that a translator, that's in a, that the rights that you have can be modified by contract. What happens is that very often contracts are silent on certain things. And then your status as an author or your status as an employee of a work made for hire becomes crucial. Because at that time the law comes in to make presumptions that certain rights are granted or not granted. So, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, I represent publishers, and for the most part, they're looking at how much is it going to cost me. You know, they become less concerned about work for hire or, or authors. But from the translator's point of view, uh, it becomes crucial in case something is or is not in the contract. Then the law comes in to demand that certain rights be granted or not granted. 
Doesn't do anything. That's correct. Let me say a word about that because that becomes legally a translator. I mean, we have a provision for that. If you accurately translate the underlying translation and it libels somebody, you should not be responsible. I mean, there has to be a disclaimer on that. And no, no reputable publisher would insist, oh, well, that those are your words and you have to pay for the libel suit. I mean, that really is unthinkable that you are obliged on the one hand to make a faithful rendition of the original, and when you do, all of a sudden you get into all kinds of legal trouble. I mean, that really is, is uh, unfair, and I don't think there are any reputable American publishers that would insist on that. But there may be things that the translator does add, and that you have to stand behind. So, but that's easy enough, you know, and I think we do have a provision in the, in the uh, I think it's paragraph three, that, that deals with, uh, um, uh, with the warranties that uh, uh, that you have, but that also, I mean, that by the way, for novice translators is crucial because the publisher is going to give you a normal warranty, and uh, you know, you warrant that every that there's nothing libelous and that violates anybody's rights, and people are only too happy to sign that, and it ends up you're warranting for a foreign publisher, and all of a sudden the royalties stop because. Uh, of something that you had no control over and indeed were required to render as accurately as possible. So that's, both agents and lawyers are extremely sensitive to that issue and, and you should be too. Uh, uh, and as, as I say, it's something a publisher will readily agree to. question I believe is about um, I believe your question concerns translation rights it's not simply a question of should you discover an obscure work by a deceased well-known author and the estate authorizes you to negotiate the question is does the estate authorize you to make the translation and those would be two different things and I'm not a great legal mind but um, Perhaps someone else can run with this after I'm done. This, for, this is something I wish Allison had been here also to speak about, but the right to translate, it's come up in other questions here this evening, is a derivative right, and, and your right to translate, or not to translate, but to publish the translation, wholly depends on the original author's underlying copyright. Now, 
again, if the estate says, go ahead, run with this, try to get a publisher, you have no guarantee that you'll be the translator. And if you're a great translator and you can get it published, um, you might try and convince the estate only to let you be the translator. Does anyone else have something to add? Well, well but that's right. I mean, there are two separate rights. One is the right to, in effect, negotiate for its publication, and the and that the estate may say, well, you're an agent, you can get, you know, a percentage if you make the deal, and you can also negotiate for the right to do the translation. Well. Uh, you can sign a contract with the estate or whoever owns the rights of the underlying rights saying, look, you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time, trouble, and effort, and I want uh, to be sure that I'm the one that does the translation. They may agree or not agree, but that's, if they agree to that, then, then they're bound by it. Right. So they can't convey the rights, you know, in derogation of what they've already agreed to. All they can do is decide not to publish. That's all they can do. Um, you should also probably be wary too. I mean, <clears throat> uh, an instance which is probably more typical is that you'll meet a, a living author who says, uh, um, you know, I'd love to have my work translated in English. Why, why don't you go ahead and do it? Um, and then you go ahead and proceed to do that and find out that he's said exactly the same thing to uh, half a dozen other translators um, and where you think you've got sort of uh, an inside edge on it all, you don't. And uh, there's nothing in writing and there's, there's no legal basis on which you can uh, have any recourse. So you should be particularly wary because authors obviously are very eager to see their work translated into English and, and try to sow their seeds as, as much as they possibly can, hoping that one will, will sort of take root. Um, and that is a, a real danger uh, for uh, new translators who are unwary. It's not like a chorus line. You're not being auditioned by uh, either publishers or authors. I mean, uh, and that's another problem about uh, people who uh, publishers say, well, let's see what you do and uh, give it a try and do one chapter. I mean, I don't know what the general practice is uh, on, on that, but uh, I don't think anybody should work for nothing. And uh, the whole business of auditioning is, uh, you know, degrading and humiliating. And uh, whether it's the author or the publisher, there's always a danger of, of getting you to do some work and then uh, not following up on it. Yeah, I mean, I think if you do a sample translation, you should definitely get paid for it. I'd be, I'd be very wary of doing anything on spec yeah. um, uh, because it's too easy in the enthusiasm along with an author uh, to do a tremendous amount of work and perhaps not even find a publisher for it. Um, I, I mean, it's a, it's a bind that, yeah, it's a that bind. you get at, into. At, at the same time, though, a lot of uh, editors will not read the language in which uh, a particular book is written. And if you want to try to communicate to them in some way of the value and worth of, the, of this book that you're 
suggesting to them sometimes it does require a sample chapter or two in order to get that across. But again, you have to sort of go into it with your eyes open uh, and not necessarily expect to get paid for it if you do something on spec like that. But so in some instances, it may be the thing to sort of open the door uh, to a publisher. And perhaps I should say one other thing that mainly we're talking about the translation of belletristic prose. I think almost no poetry would be published in this country translated from another language if it hadn't been done on spec. And I'm sure Edie knows that. Um, the woman sitting here. Yes. You. Could you speak up a bit? Yes, yeah, so we're <laughs> so we're being generally cautioned not to work on spec, something a lot of us know, but it never hurts to repeat it. But not, you know, it seems to me that if, I think the handbook even says that uh, uh, translators are responsible for the translation. Uh, uh, um, how did it, how was it phrased? That uh, agents bring almost no translations to publishers. That it's either the foreign publisher or the translator who brings the proposal to an American publisher. And I think at that point, if you bring 
a book to a publisher's attention, it's then the publisher's responsibility to check on the rights. I, I think it would be, uh, or at least I've never had to, to go through the process of checking on rights when a publisher agrees that a book would be uh, worth translating. Yeah, I mean, that's what Frankfurt and all these international uh, you know, book fairs are all about, where translation rights are exchanged. I think if you're out there and you're going to think you're going to find a book and do the translation, I, I agree with the last speaker, it's very rare. It's the American publishers know what they want to translate, and they know an author or work, and they're going to buy the rights. Then they're going to look around for the translation. It's very rare for the translator to act as the, as the agent go between inspirer of a, uh, I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all, but my experience, I know my clients uh, all buy the rights from a foreign publisher and then they look around for a translator. Well, I mean, they'll always say that it's nothing to them, it's no skin off their nose, you know, go find something wonderful and I'll look at it, you know. Uh. Yes. Can I say something here? For the last two days, CSC Rep has been holding a conference on theater translation. And um, we're not, translation of works for the theater is something we are not competent to deal with here. It is enormously complicated, and I was attended just the open session of this conference yesterday and was completely confused by everything Carrie Perloff said had gone on and what was to come and how theater translation is funded and what happens to translators, authors, playwrights, and everyone else involved. Um, this particular project is an ongoing one and I think maybe you should turn to them for advice. Peter Glasgold, you had a... Yeah, yeah.
take one or two more questions. We are going to have a reception and we can continue these questions informally afterwards. Um, right here. I could well imagine that it's happened. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it happens a lot. Um, the legal obligation of the publisher is, is probably none. There is a moral obligation uh, to the person who's brought the uh, project to a publisher, and sometimes more moral or ethical publishers will pay a finder's fee uh, and explain to the translator that they uh, like the project a lot and will uh, but unfortunately, they don't feel that you're the right translator for it and they want to send it on to someone else. Um, you may, you know, you can certainly ask for a finder's fee if they do want to do that. But again, it's, it, it is a, a gray area and you probably should try sending it to a reputable publisher rather than disreputable publishers, of which there are some. They're not listed that way in the... I know, I know. <laughs> Let, let me add some good news for publishers, uh, for translators, if I could. Uh, uh, I had a case a little while ago where someone made a translation 20 years ago. Uh, and, and like it or not, they didn't have the handbook. It was a very sloppy, uh, unclear uh, relationship, which to this extent benefited the translator, because then it sold to the movies for a whopping amount of money. And because the contract was so unclear, the translator had to get her share, and it was a nice share. So, uh, you know, contracts go, go two ways. Uh, uh, it was one of those cases where the author in that case made a deal directly with the translator, and the translator made the, together they did it with the publisher, and it just wasn't clear exactly what the percentage between, whether the percentage breakdown would, would apply to subsidiary rights. And then when it's finally sold to the movies, uh, the translator reappears and got a significant sum. So that can happen. Uh, sometimes sloppy contracts uh, are helpful to the, uh, to the junior party as well as uh, to the senior party. Hooray for our side. <laughs> as I say, it's good news uh, uh, once in a while. She has a question. Is that Edna? Talking about the time the publisher has to publish a translation, I don't but, but you see, a publisher has to make two contracts. He has to make a contract with the owner of the underlying rights. That's where that provision will be. Yeah. It won't, not with the translator. So they have an obligation. I mean, all, most publishing contracts now have some uh, time sequence after rights are acquired or the book has been completed. But they'll do that with the 
owner of the underlying right. If the translator is translating something that's in the public domain, then they're the author for all purposes. And under those circumstances, you might well insist on that kind of a, a provision. But uh, no, no, might not even know about it. But then he might. I've had paragraphs and contracts specifying the amount of time and I've also asked about the foreign contract and sometimes this is something again um, one good thing about having an agent would be having in a way access to the foreign contract or seeing that the contract between the foreign author or the foreign house and the American house and your contract with the American house were drawn up simultaneously so things were not so mysterious. There's also the other case too of there may not be another contract. <coughs> if you're translating something that's out of copyright for instance, um, uh, there won't be that clause referring to how soon it should be published and, and that probably should be something if you're then being treated as sort of an author um, uh, to be to, to ask for in the contract. But, if, but again, if you do it on a work for hire basis, and you simply transfer all your rights to the publisher and he becomes the author of the work, he can do whatever he wants with it at that point. He can sit on it forever or he can publish it the next day or whatever. And you're out of it, basically. But in cases where you're translating something that's out of copyright, you can certainly insist upon uh, a deadline of 18 months or two years uh, from the completion of the manuscript to its publication date. If there are no more questions, I'd like to invite you all to a reception, which will be where, Pamela? Okay, thanks. Thank you all.